Radio. Oh, you and your stereo needs. We're now recording in stereo. This show could be mono. You know who would care? Nobody. (laughs) Tell it like it is, brother. (laughs) I'm just saying. Welcome to a mono edition of Cinematic Community. You think we'd get complaints? You think they'd be burning us in effigy outside our houses? No. Riots in the street. I can't wait until those riots because of us. You released episode 89, (laughs) and we burned down Compton as a result, mother (laughs) bitch! Cinematic community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic. Cinematic community. Tell people not to swing the mic around. (laughs) That's a good good point. You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just been revoked. Art and craft of movie making, the stories that define. What, what do you? What's this? We've been face. We've been recording for twenty minutes. You're doing a sound check now. <laughs> what, all the material there. we did up to now, you weren't concerned that it was sound checked. There were no levels looking, and I just looked down. I didn't see any levels, and I hadn't seen them in a few minutes. I looked down, and I just wanted to do a quick check check. We've been recording for twenty minutes. I don't understand. We, you should hit record now too. Oh, you want me to roll on this? I, I would, after 20 minutes of doing material. <laughs> with that, we welcome everybody to the show. I'm Lewis Norman, and with me is my podcasting partner, Brian Hart. I'm a prisoner. <laughs> he takes my keys, ladies and gentlemen. Don't give them back until we've done all kinds of interviews and bumpers. And then he's like, oh, I guess you can go. You can return to your family. And uh, with all that slave labor comes a benefit on the other side. I'm still waiting to see the benefit. What about these awesome guests that we're having? Like David Lawrence, who sat in on today's podcast, joined us. He was an excellent guest. Talking about the amazing... Talking about the amazing time that he spent with uh, Sammy Davis Jr. growing up. Uh, David comes from an entertainment family. Uh, his mom is Edie Gourmet, and his dad is uh, Stephen Lawrence. Um, and uh, both of those cats were uh, frequent guests on the Carol Burnett. Uh, excuse me. And both of those cats were entertainers and uh, had made frequent visits on the Carol Burnett show. And uh, we're out there just, uh, and we're out there uh, doing live shows all over the country. Uh, and um, and this allowed for David to have his um, and this allowed for David to take his career into a different direction. He ended up uh, writing and composing music for features and television uh, for the next thirty years, and uh, kind of gets us to where we're at now. And we were happy to have somebody that was way outside of our norm to uh, come and share, shed some light. Yeah, it definitely opened up a whole a whole new department and groups of departments um, for post uh, composing and sound editing and who hires the orchestra and who uh, you know deals with the studio and we had no first-hand knowledge of any of that we've never uh, had to do that in our in our set lives um, you'd, you'd done some recording back in your day right no I never recorded stuff it was all live performance so I've never vocals choir 
uh, work-wise, uh, for City Kids, we, we did record the shows. We did have to record all the music ahead of time uh, for Music Video Thursdays. Uh, so I did see that part of the process. And yes, now that I think about it, I did see all of the music creation and all that. But he was explaining it on a... $50 million Disney level, which was different than than uh, the stuff we were doing for a half-hour ABC sitcom. Um, but the time pressure of, of being of scoring was, was surprising to me. Considering the budgets for these things, you'd think they'd have six, eight months lead time to do something. And from him, it was basically like you get it on Monday and you better turn it in the next Monday. That's uh, That's some time pressure for creating music. Yikes. So with that, um, we just want to make sure that everybody out there has a chance. Um, so with that, we just want to make sure everybody out there has a chance to check out some of our other episodes. And Brian was just referencing the Lori Madoff episode with City Kids. If uh, anybody out there knows uh, knows about City Kids, wants to go check that out, and go check out the Lori Madoff podcast along with the rest of our podcasts that uh, you can see on our site at www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. Um, and of course, as I always say, you can check us out on Stitcher Radio. <clears throat> I've been doing a lot of Stitcher Radio listening myself, and uh, I'm a big fan. You can find us there on Stitcher and, of course, iTunes. Uh, anywhere your podcasts are regularly found, you can find us there. So we'd like to take a minute to welcome our new staff intern to the team. Welcome, Zoe Lane. Say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. Out there in Radio Land. And uh, Zoe is going to be uh, helping us out all over the board, making sure that we get our facts straight, that we get our information filtered, and that uh, you guys can keep enjoying the show for all the, the goodness and awesomeness without uh, having our minds melt uh, in the process of getting the show out there. So thanks a lot for all your help, Zoe. I'll do my best. <laughs> right on. For the record, I consider you the scully to his molder. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. You are the scully to my molder. But early on the show, not later when suddenly like she was down with everything. Early on when it made sense. I like it. Well, to all the great teams that uh, that are out there, uh, we invite you to uh, take a listen to another episode with uh, this team right here, Brian and Lewis, Cinematic Community with David Lawrence. So uh, I guess maybe where we'd start, um, you know, you've got an extended family history that runs deep in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to tell us a little about it? Um, sure. Um, my parents um, are Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. My mom sadly passed away about a year ago. It'll be a year this month, actually. But had a very long and amazing career. And uh, growing up in that house... Uh, I was exposed to a lot of different types of music um, by virtue of the fact of, of the arrangers and composers that would come in. My, my parents were very um, successful at singing songs from the American Songbook and a lot of popular standards, Gershwin and Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hart, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and my mom, uh, in addition to that, uh, whose side of the family is Spanish, also uh, had a very successful career singing Spanish songs with the Trio Los Panchos and some other groups that were uh, very famous at the time. So I was exposed to um, a lot of different flavors 
and uh, the arrangers that would come in and out, um, people like Pat Williams, Don Costa, who was a mentor to me, um, would just infiltrate my mind with approaches to orchestration and composition and you got to check this guy out you got to check this one out and then they turned me on to brazilian jazz and that became like my my bible i approach everything with that sort of harmonic sensibility uh it's gotten me into trouble a couple of times but um but i uh it's it's just a very rich uh complex sort of harmonic approach to music so you put all that together and watch your parents performing live and you travel around the world and it's a it's a very rich experience and um i chose to be behind the camera and way behind the microphone and uh always was writing songs and ultimately wound up in conservatory in New York and moved back out to Los Angeles. I'm originally from New York and, um, just started writing, actually started writing a lot of R and B pop songs with my wife, uh, my lyricist at the time, five years later, we fell in love and got married and then, uh, backed into scoring actually. So, um, it's been said that, uh, it can be very difficult to be this, the, the child of an entertainment star. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, little birdie has told me that, uh, your parents, uh, were actually quite good, good parents yeah, and, they did. and able to manage the, they, the they business. Did, they did a good, they did a good job parenting both, both me and my brother. Um, uh, how do they do that? Um, I learned a while ago to, uh, do what they said and not what they did. <laughs> so it was what they said made tremendous sense to me. I never learned that lesson. Yeah. Um <laughs> it was a little twist on the on the uh on the proverb. Um they had great sense. They were very very loving parents, but it's really 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 hard to live by a simple rule when you're that famous and you have that much going on in your life. But they had excellent sense. And uh something knocked into my head the right way one day and I just realized I was much better off doing what they said and not what they did and uh, just stuck with it. And I got, I've ended up very lucky. Um, I grew up with a lot of people who grew up with very, you know, successful families and they didn't end up so lucky. So you're breaking a stereotype. You're really, you're messing up the curve. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I get that a lot. I get that a lot from people. It's like, you know, what happened to you? Um, I'm really like the exception and not the rule, but, um, I like the being on this side better. So Meanwhile, uh, uh, meanwhile, your your uh, your family, your mom was uh, one of the first crossover artists yeah. to ever bridge the gap between absolutely. American music, the American music industry, and the Latin music industry. Oh, absolutely! About what year was that? Um, late fifties, early sixties. Um, they, it, I, I, I think it was before they actually signed a deal with Columbia. The head of A and R, I forgot the label she was with. Um, said, you speak beautifully, you've got this great voice, and this could be a great avenue for you to access more fans, to access more demographic. And he hooked my mom up with uh, a very famous uh, three-man group at the time called the Trio Los Panchos. They're very, very, very famous. And subsequently had many records with them and many hits with them and went over all of Latin America, and, excuse me, South America and over in Europe. Um, and she had sung with Lucho Gatica and she had sung with, uh, Danny Rivera and, and, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And she became, uh, sort of a cult icon in the Latino world. I, I would think specifically because she was an American, um, she sort of earned 
her respects because she does have serious Spanish roots. That's how I learned to speak. That's how I was fluent as a kid. My grandma taught her and she taught me and it's sort of like that's what it is in the house. And so she was the real deal. She wasn't somebody who was looking to market herself as, oh, I can learn to speak Spanish, then I'll go sing. I mean, she was, she was the real deal. And when people realized that by listening to her speak and listening to her vernacular and her idiomatic expressions, they, they just uh, immediately uh, latched onto her. And what's amazing is that culture has stayed fans of her music forever because the Latino culture is such that uh, the grandparents played for the parents, the parents played for the kids. And I, 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 I walk into people now and I run into people now and who are half my age who know all of my mom's records because they grew up with it in their house. And the grandma was playing, the great-grandma was playing. It's, it's just cultural. That doesn't happen that much in this country. So it's really kind of cool. And meanwhile, uh, your dad was hanging around uh, the Rat Pack and oh yeah, and running a one with a whole different uh, form of entertainment. Yeah, I mean, he actually my, my mom really took about ten years to become an overnight success. Uh, my yeah, dad, yeah, that's, my, that's, that's my dad, line. truly was an overnight success. I mean, he had a first record when he was fifteen and a half or sixteen, and it was number one in the area. In those days, you had, were like a hit in the tri-state area. You were a hit in Pittsburgh, or you were, you know they didn't have the sort of wide appeal. And we had a record label technology. executive who was explaining some of those principles uh, from back then. Yeah, exactly. In the, in so if show. you were a hit in Pittsburgh and Connecticut, and New Jersey, then they're going to take you to Cleveland and, you know, Miami. And, you know, so it just worked that way. But he was a hit overnight. So, And when they would do that, they would line up with the individual, like, places for shows so that you could have your record get circulated right. and you were going doing the shows yeah. so that you can kind of, like – you know, double whammy or triple That's whammy exactly to, right. to get your record That's exactly sold. right. It was a very sort of hand-to-mouth sort of operation. Uh, very old school, but it was amazing. That's how people got recorded. That's how people got played, and that's how you built a career. Um, and then, you know, as technology changed and your fame increased, uh, and and the syndication technology got more expansive, because they were localized too, once they went nationwide or half nationwide, then, you know, your careers exploded, you know, and, and then television and blah, 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 blah. You know, the rest is sort of history. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about the, the, the Carol Burnett show. Uh, in what respect? Uh, your family was uh, were regular guests on the show? Yeah, my dad uh, – my mom did a bunch of them, but my dad I think did more than any other guest star in Carol's 11 years. Um, and uh, not a lot of people realize what a good actor my dad is. You know, he spends most of his career, spent most of his career singing. But um, you can see him in the Blues Brothers. You can see him in uh, The Lonely Guy. You can see him in all the Cal Burnett episodes, uh, a lot of episodic TV. Um, he's a really, really good actor, a really good comic actor and a really good dramatic actor. But The Burnett Show was, was a, a playpen for him and for Carol. Um, it was just a feeding frenzy and there were, there were no holds barred. Didn't matter what the script said or didn't say, they were just going to go ahead and do what they wanted to do. And the audience just loved it, you know, and it's a great, um, breeding ground to sort of hone your craft as well. You know, I guess the only other, uh, really historic question that I really want to kind of make sure I get in with our limited amount of time sure. is what was, uh, what was, um, Frank Sinatra like? What was Frank Sinatra like? I I actually knew him better as an adult than I did as a child. Um, he's everything you'd expect as an icon. He lived and breathed his iconness. Um, my parents knew him much better than I ever did 
and when he was younger as well, um, you know, in the true Rat Pack days. Um, I can tell you a lot more about Sammy Davis Jr. because he was a permanent fixture in our house. He was literally my mother's closest friend. So he was Uncle Sammy all the time. You know, he would just, hey, Sam, how you doing? You know, so I can tell you more about Sammy in terms of being one of the most genuine human beings and one of the most talented human beings that ever walked the face of the planet, uh, face of the earth. Um, But an unbelievably decent, kind, passionate, passionate guy. My time with Sinatra was more about just sort of observing um, this alien-like celebrity that just transcended all things, you know, and um, that was that was an experience and sort of hanging around with his entourage is an experience um, and being in the inner circle is an experience. Um, Did he have a large entourage? Like um, who would travel with him? You know what? It's the entourage was not hangers honors, which you see a lot of now. Um, It was mostly literally people. It was dressers and it was hair and it was business managers and it was accountants and it was, uh, Barbara, his wife, and a couple, a handful of musicians and whoever was opening with him. So, you know, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, but it was a legitimate entourage. It wasn't sort of like uh, my nephew's third best friend. And, you know, it, it was never that. He was a very, very powerful private guy. So you felt uh, comfortable growing up in good hands? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Growing up in, that fam- in, in the family that I did, uh, I was never intimidated by any of that. It just... Um, not even with with um, Sinatra. It just felt like everything else kind of felt growing up. You know, we had heads of state in the house and heads of corporations in the house and, and a lot of really famous people who happened to be my parents, really good friends, and we would just hang out. So, you know, later on in life, you learn to be incredibly respectful of those people and you don't want to sort of be in their face and ask them for an autograph. And Absolutely. Occasionally, you just want to just say, I just love your work and... Have a fabulous day. Just keep it professional. Or yeah, keep exactly. it personal, one of the two. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so moving on. Sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of being a composer because this is this is an area that I, I don't think people, a, a lot of our audience that are crew members, we really don't know a lot about this. You know, we're on, we know our part of pre-pro and production mm-hmm. on set. Mm-hmm. You you're in a post world that I, I think a lot of us just know academically. You know, you're adding uh, either you're adding songs to a movie or adding uh, you know whatever it is. But yeah. we we don't really know what that process is. We don't know how it starts. Like who hires you? What's let's say let's say Disney was doing a tentpole feature, right. um, you know, a fifty million dollar thing. Uh-huh. Who comes to you? Is it a producer? Is it a director that you've had a well, relationship with? How, how do you get hired? Most of of most of my work has come from relationships. Um, and so that's usually where it starts, whether it's a producer, you know, or an executive at the studio or director. Um, that's usually where most of the work comes. Um, as you get a little bit more well-known and your awareness level goes up, then your agent starts calling you because they got a call who would like from somebody who'd like to work with you. But even, even when you're rocking and rolling, um, majority of of your work is still through um, loyalty and relationships with people you've had over the course of your career that's that's a it's a it's a very rare thing and it's a very cherished thing so if you have it count your blessings 
But that's how it kind of starts. So let's keep it our example of this Disney film. Are, are you hired when they're in pre-pro still, long when it's long in the future? Are you hired when the show's about to wrap up in terms of their shooting schedule? Um, like when do you come on a show? For, for films, you're hired um, before pre-production uh, most of the time. Um, Just to give you time to write? Oh, no, 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 no. We'll get into that in a minute. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, no, the time to write is a thing of the past. There is no time to write. All right, fair enough. Um, that's why post-production is such a farce at this point, because it's not post-anything. It's like, we have 15 minutes, are you done yet? So it's sort of like So for our purposes, we'll assume you know there's about a 20-week lead time of pre-pro, maybe? Yeah. Basically what happens with a composer um, is, un- unless... Well, let's start from a from a film or a television standpoint. Um, you're hired, then there's pre-production, and you're waiting and waiting, and then there's production, and they may show you some dailies to get a sense of flavor for the piece, and you may start... Are you talking... You've had the script. Are you talking to the director? Are you uh, getting... It, it depends project by project. The script can also be constantly getting rewritten while they're filming, uh, at which point the script means nothing because it could mean... What it meant yesterday is something completely different today. Um, I generally, uh, unless a director is really passionate about thematic material, and they usually don't have that luxury to be passionate about thematic material because they're so busy making the movie, um, generally once they start assembling, even before the director's cut, you'll start coming in and seeing some footage if you if you can, if they'll let you. Um, they and may this have is typically some, a 20, 30 week post. Yeah, block, for features, yeah. For television, obviously, it's, much a, it's a two day post or a three day post because they have editors constantly making assemblies and the directors are usually hired for that episode. Um, and so they basically have eight days on a drama or seven or eight days to do a shoot, and then two or three days to really turn it around, spot the music with the composer who has about 17 minutes basically <laughs> uh, to turn in a score. And then, you know, about how many cues are in that score? Well, it depends. And I, I know I keep jumping from film to TV, but it's really hard to, to put it into perspective. Um, for, for you who understand sort of pre-production and production, for the life of a composer, none of that really, really exists. Um, what, what usually happens is once there's some assemblage of picture, I would say a director's first cut, um, they then start showing you the movie. Um, it's really then up to the studio when they need to be wrapped and when they start need to make uh, – prints, marketing, and start getting the thing out that determines how little time you have left to finish the score, record it, and mix it. Um, I've had as much as two months to write a score, and I've had as little as six days to write a score for a feature. Um, And part (laughs) of that is just how much is done, how much is finished, I rarely get a locked picture ever. When it's locked, it's usually changed again the next day. This was a question I was going to ask you. I mean, somebody gives you a ninety-minute show, you you do a score for it, there's, but there's you know there's, there's always interference. You know, some executive. Well, let's take out this scene. Let's take out that part. Right. You know, what's your your process to have to go back in and then? Oh, well, wait, I had ninety minutes of score, and now it's only supposed to be eighty-three minutes. Well, and- I mean, sometimes. Um, you can really get bailed out by your music editor who is usually handpicked by the composer and, excuse me, basically watches your back as a parent would. 
and just takes care of the director, takes care of the producers, and takes care of the composers. So they can, a lot of the times, make certain edits. But if there are certain things that have to be wholesale changes, then the studio basically gives you an extra allotment of time, and you go back and you make the changes. If the director's really not happy or the studio's really not happy. Um, and like I said, in television, um, they are six months ahead uh, three, well, anywhere from three to six months ahead of, of, of the score. So by the time you actually look at a picture, it has to be locked because it's airing in six days. Um, and you have about four days to write it, preview as much as you can for the producers, fix what they want changed after the previews, mix it and turn it in. It's, it's, it's a grind, but it's a well And on average, grind. is that like 15 minutes of music? Is um, it- not the shows I work on. The shows I work on are 30 to 40 minutes of music. Wow. Um, so there's no sleeping for those two or three days. I've, I've learned, um, how to write high volume, high quality on a, on a very short schedule. Um, it's something you either know how to do or you don't. If you're thrown into that situation, I worked on a show called Jericho. Um, and, um, it was the greatest sort of professional writing experience of my life. Not only did I love the show and I love the subject matter and I love the cast. Um, and Me too it, for all those three. Uh-huh. <laughs> Me too for yeah, all those three. And I went and, back to listen to an episode specifically so we could talk about Jericho. Oh, cool. Well, we could segue into that now if that's sort of... Yeah, like, please. Uh, yeah. um, but, you know, a show like Jericho um, was like really working on a feature every week. And every week, besides the storylines changing, there were new characters that were always introduced to sort of continue the storyline. Um, and so uh, John Hurdletaub, who directed and produced the show, um, really wanted thematic development for everything. And it was like I was like a kid in a candy store because if anybody gives me a long leash, believe me, I will take that and lengthen it as much as I can to really go for it. Um, but their backs were against the wall. They had eight or nine day shooting schedule. We had 35 to 40 minutes of, of dense orchestral electronica music to write. And I had three and a half days. Um, so, you know, I learned on that show um, – how to manage sleep, how to write really, 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 really fast, and to write really, really, really well. Um, For anyone and, who doesn't know, Jericho is an hour-long drama, post-apocalyptic yeah, vibe. Yeah, oh, man. So you, but Netflix, you had, go get it. It's you awesome. had like 25, 30 characters to play with. Yeah. You know, you had the spy character, and you yeah. do little the sneaky and everybody, stuff. And- I was really, really adamant about not recapitulating themes for other characters. Whoever had their theme... That followed them for the year and a half they were in that show. The heroic guy, yeah, yeah. the bad Every, guy. We had 30, 40 different themes that yeah. just followed everybody. Which brings me to one of my questions about, about themes that are out there. What kind of themes do you enjoy exploring to try and come up with new mediums or uh, fresh concepts? Um, in terms uh, um, professionally or musically? Um, professionally. Uh, professionally, as you're taking on pieces, you know, uh, so you're watching new episodes of Jericho, which, as you mentioned, pull on these different themes. What were some of those themes and what are some of the other themes you'd like to explore when you when somebody gives you something that you, you go, oh, this is good. What kind of things are that? Um, hopefully I'll answer this in the spirit with which you're asking. And if I veer, pull me back. Um, usually... It's you're motivated by the character, you know, um, a director or producer can sort of give you some foreground and with their passion tell you, oh, this guy does this and he's like, this is like this and it's great and it's great. And you can read it on the page, but it's really not until you actually see film that 
I can react. You know, very seldom has there been a, a, a project where I was so moved by a script that I just started writing. That happened once or twice. And it was an independent film, so we had the luxury of just sort of experimenting and throwing stuff up against the wall. You don't really have that luxury in my my universe. Um, but I'm usually motivated and, and um, inspired by the, by the acting, you know, how, how it's presented to me. I mean, even if it's the roughest piece of film. Um, but I guess globally, to sort of answer your question for your audience, it's we live in an entirely different dimension. You know, to make a movie or to make a television show, the amount of pre-production has to be so surgically crafted and the time has to be budgeted correctly because there's really no room for a lot of error and you're dealing with massive amounts of crew and people and talent and it's really just a giant ship by the time it gets to composers they are without a doubt the last element in a chain before the movie gets released the last thing before a movie gets released and the last thing before a television show airs is the composer. That's it. He's the last in the line. So all the crap that hit the fan uh, ends up on your lap. Everything that needs to get fixed ends up on your lap. It's been and- said that the dialogue comes first, the sound effects come later, and then the, uh, then the score. Oh, absolutely. It's the last thing. In order of and sometimes it's the last thing you hear, which is very frustrating. <laughs> but, um, but no, it is. It's the last thing to sort of um, embellish, enhance, and sometimes fix, which it really can't, but they rely a lot heavily on on what music can do and, and not do, which is why a lot of people tend to sort of overspot um, a, a film or a television show because they're not necessarily confident of what they have on screen. So they figured if they shower it with music, it'll fix a lot of stuff. So spotting um, is the actual placement of a cue. Into exactly, a, exactly. Like we're going here, we come out here, and I want something really fancy here, and I want something you know really exciting here, and. When the tires are spinning and when the knife goes into his eye, I want something, you know, blah, 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 blah. Now let's – I have a, a, sort of a follow-up to that. Sure. I would think that the only way that you could do, you know, something on like a TV show where you're being asked to come up with 30, 40 minutes of music is you've, you've got the themes in your head. Mm-hmm. Somehow you've kept them in your head and that's mm-hmm. a musical ability that well, you keep 99% in your head, of you us don't have. You keep them in your computer. You have everything templated. Do you have to listen to a previous show before you do the next one to kind of warm yourself Sometimes because you can't – Oh, I mean, you're writing so fast, you can't remember what you wrote the last week. So you go back and you listen to a mix. Oh, I remember that cue, and I'll just call it back, and then I'll go in and massage it, re-edit it, add some new stuff, and you know, and develop it that way. Um, you know, I always look forward to new characters because then I can just write from scratch. So it's awesome. Uh, but you have to, you have to sort of keep a really well organized um, folder, music folder, of your themes, and so that you know you take them with you under your arm and wherever you go. And you know, after a while, um, once you're on a roll with a show, um, you just do osmotically start remembering. Oh, this theme I'm going to bring back, and I remember what I did here, and it just yeah. it just becomes part of the process. Same with shooting. Yeah, you know, uh, we generally light the close ups this way, right? You know, we're well, because also you know it works, and you have faith in the process, and um, you know that's part of the craft too. You know, it's you really don't have time to uh, pontificate. In keeping with that timeline, let's say it's now day four of your eight days to come up with a soundtrack, you know, with, with a, a score for a TV show. Are you getting notes from people or are they pretty yeah. hands off? No, no, no. Um, more and more, um, 
people are much more hands-on now. And is um, it the director or no, is it in television, the studio exec? In television, it's the studio executives. Um, in film, it's the director, uh, sometimes the producer, and definitely the studio executives. Studio have heavy hand in both uh, mediums, but the director is really the captain of a film and the producer is really the captain of a TV show. So um, you'll hear from a, a, a producer or showrunner on a television show and a studio executive constantly. Um, there were know, any times where you run into conflict where the constantly. studio executive is like, make it happier. <laughs> the director's yeah. like, make it sadder. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was, I was wrestling once with a director uh, and a producer, and it was decided I need to do orchestral reggae. Because one guy loved reggae and one guy loved orchestral music, and I just looked at them both and I said, "Can't be done. Can't be done. We have to. We've got to get a little bit more specific." I, I don't know how to do that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Um, yeah, I. You know, I think most composers um, who are worth their salt um, should be trusted a little bit more in the process and not. Um, always at the the beck and call of studio or producer or director's notes. I mean, you hire that person, you have to trust that person. And the micromanaging has gotten really bad over the last 10 or 15 years to where you start out with something special and you end up with something incredibly generic and everyone else thinks it's really, really special and you're on your 10th rewrite and it was really only good after your third one. I mean, you know, usually my first or second pass is... I mean, that's as good as it gets. Decision by committee. Yeah, and the more people in the committee, the the less quality of your work, the more generic. And when I say less quality, it doesn't mean it, it sounds crappy. It sounds awesome. I mean, you know, I've written for 100-piece orchestras uh, on my ninth rewrites, and they sound great, but it's not good writing. It just sounds good, you know. Bigger is better, and it shouldn't be. But but that's not true. That's true with everything. It's not just not just composition. Sure. It's a business. One more soundtrack question sure. before we move on to – one more score question before sure. we move on to soundtrack. Sure. I, and I want everyone to understand the difference between those two. Oh, yeah. It will be very important in this conversation. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for how scores are released to the public for sale. I'm wondering if you have any insight on this. Do they come to you? No. Do they, is it a P, is it purely a marketing PR yeah, thing? Yeah, a lot that, that of never it. seems to make any sense. Like even you know the biggest project, the, the smallest project – you know, a lot of the times I'll hear a score. I'm like, man, I really, really like to go out and buy that CD. And like eight times out of ten, it's not available. I've yeah. never understood the, the – give us the mechanism of that well, if you know what the backstory is. I wish is. I understood it really, really well. But in Do the they old, come to the, you at all? Is it a, is it a, a release well, situation? In the old days, there was actually – there were actually small budgets for – excuse me – mastering soundtracks. And record companies like Verez Saraband and – other small little labels, they kind of was their niche where they would put out movie soundtracks. Specifically, uh, for those who don't know, mastering would be the ordering and layering of uh, a, well, a, a it's order, songs mastering into- is ordering and sort of putting the last layer of angel dust before it actually gets pressed onto a CD. Um, you have like a final mix, and sort of mastering is like color timing. Mastering is um, well, mastering is like color timing, basically. I'll buy that. Um, uh, in an audio world, but the, um, smaller labels, um, their profit margins got lower and lower and smaller and smaller. And then they started losing money. And then it really wasn't in anybody's interest to 
offer these deals to put out soundtrack albums. So what happens now is if it's a giant score, um, those uh, the studios will put the soundtracks out because it behooves them since it's their movie. Um, they'll make it available on iTunes. They'll make well, it available. Yeah, we, should, we should make the difference between score and soundtrack, at least with the oh, score. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm you sorry. You own 100% uh, of the material. Soundtrack actually has two meanings. Soundtrack uh, is soundtrack can is somebody mean, else's music. Well, no, the soundtrack can actually also mean the score of the film. The composer's score could also be, did you hear the soundtrack to them? It's a vernacular more than, you know, you don't go out, when you go out and buy the score, you're downloading the soundtrack to, you know, you're downloading Hans Zimmer's score, but you're downloading the soundtrack to Batman Begins. Um, but I would think of, you know, a soundtrack on a film, it's usually, oh, that's Peter Gabriel's song. Right. That's well, Billy Joel's right. song. Then when you talk about, you know, Forrest Gump and you talk about everything, you know, I mean, when I, my, Forrest Gump is, a, is an ancient it would have had both. example, but it was a screamingly successful soundtrack. Um, one of the most successful soundtrack sales, like, ever. Um, Who did the scoring? Uh, well, Alan Silvestri did the score. But the soundtrack had sixties and seventies. Oh my god, music yeah. it was just crazy. Yeah. So Rangers. that that's another interpretation or definition of what soundtrack is. But in terms of um, going back to to getting scores available, uh, a lot of composers now uh, through the digital age will put stuff out and make deals with CD Baby or iTunes or Amazon uh, just to get their work out there because they basically have the masters of the finished product of the score and they just sequence it and they master it or color time it, the equivalent of. Um, and they don't even have to make CDs anymore. They just pop it up on a SoundCloud or they make it available at Amazon. It's much more profitable or not even profitable, but it's much less expensive um, to get your stuff up there now. Whereas 10 years ago when the labels weren't putting out the soundtracks, it would cost you serious change to make a CD and pop it out there. So it's, you know, you're, you'll find more and more soundtracks available now because people will just put it up on SoundCloud. It's really, really easy. Or like I said, Amazon or iTunes and whatever their deal is, you know, they'll make some money or they won't. And if you have a hit movie, the studio will put it out or if they don't want to, you've got enough cachet from the film that it behooves you to put it out. Uh, in terms of soundtracks, that's all stu- – the song soundtracks, that's all studio. They make the deals. They wrote millions of dollars of license fees. They get all that revenue. They make that soundtrack album, and they want you to go and buy it. But and that's typically put together by a by – A music supervisor, music supervisor, in-house music staff, music executives, music supervisor in the studio. But soundtrack albums um, – are also dinosaurs now. I mean, they, the gone are the '90s, '80s, and '90s, and I probably early 2000s, but not past that at all. It's been 15 years since something has really been worth spending three or four million dollars in license fees to put a soundtrack album out because of technology. People would just download this or download say, this. So soundtracks did not survive iTunes. No. Yeah. No. Uh, very. I mean, Frozen is really not a good example. It's just. One of those every ten year things where it just explodes, and you know everybody wants to. Or Pharrell's Happy. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that they would download Happy, they wouldn't necessarily download the entire soundtrack album. But if but Happy was so successful that you would download the album. But I'm saying that's two. I'm, there's seven hundred others that you know never couldn't get real. You know what you will you'll find more soundtracks now are in kids movies and animation movies because you know they want it in the van, they want it with mom and dad and all. Sure. You know, so there's there's more of a market there, but the adult market soundtrack uh, market is kind of dead. Yeah, it's been said before that less less than 4% of the actual music that's out there that it's out there accounts for 96% of the income. Yeah, exactly. And you know, as a result, you see uh, uh, only a handful of music supervisors that have survived 
that are still in the business, you know, earning a living at being a music supervisor. Can we talk a little bit about some of the different uh, people that you have to interact with sure. to get your job done? You mentioned a music editor that saves your skin. You talk oh, yeah. about, uh, you know, we've talked about arrangers, um, uh, music supervisors, as you said before. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are you? Maybe your first violin if you're not doing a plastic score. Mm-hmm. Like, who are these people that you need to work with to get your job done on a regular basis? Well, I also, um, it starts with, you know, the studio. And I have a, a very small core family of people, uh, one of whom are actually in this room. Um, Pancho Burgos, who is a marvelous composer uh, and a dear, dear friend now. We started on Jericho together, and he watches my back night and day and makes sure that I don't screw up. Um, and I, uh, You mean by coming onto this podcast? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, he basically looks over my shoulder, makes sure all the... MIDI is good. The orchestration is good. Does all the necessary conversions uh, to get everything ready for getting mixed by a recording engineer. Um, I use Matt Lapointe a lot, who's uh, somebody who's done most of my television work and some of my film work. Um, uh, That's where it starts. And um, from that point on, I heavily rely on a a music editor. Um, You know, putting orchestras together, you know, I want. I top tier guys. I know who to call, and I know what to expect from them, and I know what I'm going to get from them. But um, it's really your family. Handpicked musicians that'll put a little angel dust on your on your recording. You know, there's a handful of people I'll go to all the time that I just totally trust and don't even have to say anything anymore. It's just let's let's get together, let's work. Um, that's the family, you know, and your music editor, of course, because they take all your notes and tell you where you need to be and where you don't need to be, and come in and come out and. And, you know, then put everything, lay it down on, on, on in post on the dub stage for everybody to just, you know, exactly, you know, interface with the director and the producer and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a small group, you know, the larger core, um, you know, is sort of like the dub stage and I don't interface that much with those people. The studio technicians and personnel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's not my realm. Yeah. Um, what about uh, someone who does arrangements? Um, I do all my arrangements. I do all my orchestrations. Um, and what does someone who, if, so if you were to hire someone to do the arranging, what would that person be doing? Um, it, not so much the arranging, but I would hire somebody to do the orchestrating. Um, but usually what happens is I do like um, uh, composers do things called mock ups. And a mock up is basically. Uh, a realization, a plastic realization, by plastic, you know, using your libraries of different sounds, uh, of what it'll sound when you replace it with the real orchestra. A digital representation. A digital representation. Um, my mock-ups are basically 100% digitally represented, um, 95 to 100% digitally represented. And so usually what will happen is Poncho will look over my shoulder and then we send it off to uh, one or two copyists that I work with all the time. And um, if a certain oomph is in the reference track, I'll just be on the phone with the copyist saying, um, I didn't handwrite this in, but I need a glissando until this bar. I need to do hats on this and I need bigger hairpins on the strings and they know exactly what I'm talking about. And they, in that respect, will flesh it out for me. But most of the orchestrating, if not all of it, is, is pretty much done. Did everyone get that nomenclature? Because nobody in this room oh, understood that. Oh, I'm sorry. That. No, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. Uh, on the high there's notes. A, there's, you know, look, in, in, in the real world, when you're really, really jammed, um, um, even when I'm jammed, I'm just, I don't know, I'm old school. You know, I just, I, I, I don't do anything by hand. It's all on computer. But 
you know, I kind of basically do all my own work, but, um, most people, um, will basically have fairly detailed sketches and they will hand it over to an orchestrator. An orchestrator will basically realize in full form what the intent of the composer was. Uh, so the composer may have a top line of a string and a middle line of a woodwind and a trombone and a drum loop and a uh, repeating string figure. And the orchestrator's job is to go in there and basically fill in the blanks. On the, on the actual note sheet. Yeah, well, basically to take it to the scoring stage so the orchestra can play it. They take it to the, the orchestrator basically writes it out, then they send it to the copyist who basically digital, digitizes the into, onto paper, and then they pass out the paper to the orchestra. I've seen that happen once yeah. before. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the orchestrator, is that person or one of his uh, assistants or minions, is that person uh, hiring the orchestra? No. Uh, the contractor, there's an orchestra contractor that contracts the orchestra, and they will usually go to the composer and just say, how many people do you need? Um, uh, who do you want for your first violin chair? Who do you want for your first bass? Who do you want for your lead trumpet? You know, and then they fill in everything else. Um, studio players, are they, they are unionized? Uh, yes. And what does, what is that, uh, what local, uh, what In union? LA, it's the 47. And In New York, that, it's 802. Uh, and the, uh, the union name is? Uh, uh, American Federation of Musicians, the AF of M. Got it. Just, uh, just a little pinpoint. Just wanted to make sure I stuck that nugget in mm-hmm. there. Um, it's a, a topic we visit on this show regularly is mm-hmm. uh, union representation, and um, and just want to make sure I ask that uh, ask that little nugget. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and for those of you who sometimes wonder why there's 600 credits at the end of a film, yeah. you just heard where 25 of them come from that you probably yeah. don't always understand. Although, not although even, unfortunately, the musicians never get credited on the back end. It's they're they're not a strong enough union, and there's uh, limited crawl space on the end of the film. So because it could easily be a hundred people. Yeah, easily. you'll see a uh, head nurse. You'll see uh, you know bicycle trainer. <laughs> uh, but you won't see uh, well, you know, who played Sag the violin. has got a very big gun to the back no, of all of our heads. Absolutely, so. absolutely. So it's it's about uh, you but know. But all pe- the officers you just talked about, they'll get listed. Uh, that? The, all the all the officers, all the, the you know the person who hired this person, the keys. Right, they, right, they right, 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 right. So that's right. probably twenty five, thirty people just in exactly. There's an there's, orchestration a, there's a team. there's a little you know they'll, they'll get the 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 headline sort of music crew you know orchestrated by conducted by uh, mixed by. Um, if there are really key prominent musicians, one or two of them will get mentioned if they're soloists. Um, then you get, you know, music produced by and assistant music editor, music editor, and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, there's about 20 names. That's just sort of the headline of each category. Um, in a minute. Well, let's... Um Let's talk about Lawrence and Greenberg. Okay. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about uh, Faye, who yes. was your lyricist early on. But yeah. take us through that process. She would get a promotion later. Um, so I had actually known Faye um, on and off for a lot of years. And we were both from New York, and we both moved out to Los Angeles with our family in the 70s. And then I went back to conservatory in the early 80s. She went back to New York around the same time to uh, do a lot of theater and review stuff. She's a theater geek and knows everything that has ever happened in musical theater. Um, and um, coincidentally, we moved back out to Los Angeles after I graduated and she had moved back out around the same time. And I had known each other, th- we had known each other through family, friends and whatever. And I was up for this um, 
uh, theme to write for uh, the syndicated version of the the new Gidget on Channel Five KTLA, right. and it needed lyrics. And my mom said, "You know, Faye just got back from New York, and why don't you give her a call?" Because I didn't know anybody. I was literally just green from conservatory and you know writing songs my whole life, but I needed lyrics. And Faye came over, and um, we just—I mean, it was instant. It was instant. Um, we just, our writing styles were perfect. Our, our temperament were perfect. Our senses of humor were equally distorted and cruel and evil. And it was wonderful. Um, and, um, yeah, the first day we started working together, um, we were just on the floor laughing our asses off. We just, it was just, it was just one of those, you know, kismet. Um, and then, um, we actually just started writing, out of nowhere, a lot of R&B pop songs. Uh, we wrote for Earth, Wind and & Fire, Stephanie Mills, Diane Shore. We wrote and produced for a Boys to Men precursor group called Riff, um, a Temptation-style sort of record. And um, uh, we that's where we were sort of getting most of our cuts, but um, it's really hard to make it in the record business unless you're a massive success like Diane Warren or L.A., Babyface, Carole King, blah, 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 blah. Like we mentioned, the 4%. Yeah, exactly. And so you kind of have to put eggs in different baskets. And Faye uh, went into children's television and children's theater in New York, and I started orchestrating off-Broadway shows and um, – uh, one day, a friend of mine from high school said, I'm doing this big bug movie. I said, big, like, he said, no, 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 there's no money in it, but it's like these giant bugs. They're big, big, huge bugs, and they've had too much toxic waste, and I'd love you to do the score. And um, I said, sure, whatever. You know, and, it's and, everyone's uh, dream come true. <laughs> and uh, you could, if you look carefully, you'll still see these rubber mosquitoes on the string bouncing. You know, I mean, it's just, it was just really, really bad. But it was a fantasy. It was a dream come true. And I wrote with whatever synths I had at the time, some sort of orchestral synth score. And I just had a blast. And then another friend of mine asked me to music supervise an after school special. And, um, uh, and I needed five minutes of music. Is that something you know how to do? And I said, yeah, I can try that. And then another friend of mine called me and said, I'm doing this feature for Disney and let's do this. And then another friend of mine called me and said, love you to do the music for Beverly Hills 90210. And, yeah. you know, it's just, you, there's no path. There's really just no path. You just have to stay alive and you have to be able to put food in your mouth until you can afford to make a living at it. Because there are, believe me, um, Beethoven's and Tchaikovsky's and Bartok's out there that we will never, ever, ever hear because they were not fortunate enough to make it. You know, yeah, that, just, next, that next level. Yeah. I mean, we could say that about artistry all the way around. Oh, though. yeah. I mean, you, you look at the people that are successful in this business and they're about a trillionth of a percent of the two talent out in the world. It's just, it's just the way it, it is. So, you know, count your blessings. Uh, they say that uh, one of the most difficult things uh, for a marriage would be to work with that person and play with that person and live with that person. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I would not survive any more than one of those three. Yeah. So how have you pulled it off? Um, very. For me, it was very simple um, because I grew up in a family where my parents lived, breathed, and worked together. And I saw that you could do that, and I saw the love between them, and I grew up with that as a model. So it wasn't something foreign to me. It was something obvious to me. Of course you could do that. Of course. Why can't you? And so I had that observation for 25 years of my life, 
seeing two people being successful and loving each other and raising a family and working with each other and screaming at each other and getting on each other's nerves and working through it. And at the end of the day, they go to, they're in bed together and they just, you know, they, they go to sleep at night, kiss each other good night and they start all over again the next day. And that just became something very, um, doable in my brain. It wasn't something, again, it wasn't the exception. It was the norm in, in my way of thinking. So, um, the hardest thing for Faye and I is that we had become each other's best friends after four or five years. We were inseparable and we, our company was together and our writing was together and our publishing company was together. So falling in love was actually kind of terrifying because if it didn't work, we were screwed. Um, so we just made a, like a blood pact that no matter what, we have to be honest with each other and just, you know, till the, till, till the, to the death, till the end. And, uh, and, it, and we were, and it worked out great, you know. But what was interesting, um, as I started doing more film and TV stuff and she started doing more um, theater and children's television, um, we were writing less and less and less and less and less. We had separate lives in, in, a, in a way because um, we were each paying the bills in, with different resources, different avenues, you know, writing songs just was not the ticket for us until High School Musical came. And, um, I had done a bunch of movies as a composer for Disney and I had developed a really good relationship with the head of music there, a guy named Steve Vincent, who's be- since become a very, very close friend and a marvelous, marvelous human being. Um, and I was at a, some charity thing for my daughter's school and I got a call from Steve and he said, I'm here with the director, Kenny Ortega, and we're doing this thing called High School Musical, and we'd love you to do the score. And I said, yeah, great, 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 but tell me more about this High School Musical thing. Is like musical, like songs musical? And uh, he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, uh, Faye and I write songs, and uh, we love musicals. <laughs> and uh, I said, as a matter of fact, we're, and we, at the time it was true, we were actually writing a musical with Blake Edwards, who was one of my heroes and icons of all time, uh, 20s romp gangster musical, Faye and Blake and I. And they said, oh my God, you got to send us over some stuff. And we sent them stuff and they said, oh, this is fantastic. All right, so we want you to write this big, huge high school number in the middle of the show. And it ended up being status quo where the entire high school singing and all the kitchen, uh, the uh, cafeteria tables. And um, that led to writing and producing more for the franchise for High School Musical and uh, a relationship with Kenny Ortega, which has lasted uh, wonderfully for years. And then we did work for the Cheetah Girls and on and on and on and on and on. Um, and then it was really a, almost like a 10-year hiatus where Faye and I weren't really writing together. And all of a sudden, we're writing all the time. And it was really fun. I mean, it was like, I remember this. This used to be really great. You know, it was just <laughs> it was just awesome. And, um, you know, we've been really, really fortunate. Um, Disney has been incredibly good to us. Um, we wrote and produced stuff for a, a new franchise for them last year called Teen Beach Movie, which they're making the sequel now, and that's done very well for them. And we're working on stuff for them. You know, we, we most of the songwriting we do now um, is for Disney because they're really one of the only outlets left that are making an environment to write musical-like songs. You know, that have pop elements to it and are theatrical. There's, there's, it's not a lot of that going on anymore. I mean. You know, you look at shows like Glee, which would never have been possible if not for High School Musical. I mean, the only reason Glee exists is because of High School Musical. But 
they're not original songs and it was a brilliant convention that you would just take all these covers and just reproduce them and it's awesome. But in terms of a songwriting, um, Disney, you know, Nickelodeon, uh, every now and then, um, you know, a, a movie will come out where there's some original material, but you know, the folks over at Disney are still really wholeheartedly, that's what they believe in. So it's great for people like Faye and I, and it's, it's been fabulous just to write. You and know. you two have a couple of projects coming up with Disney later this year? Yeah, there's two movies that are coming up. Um, one called The Descendants and then Teen Beach Movie 2. Um, uh, the Teen Beach Movie 2 is a sequel to Teen Beach Movie, of course. Uh, and those scores uh, will be done, I think, in December and January, respectively. And then they'll air summer of 15 and fall of 15, I think. Are, um, are you and Faye working together on that? Um, we are working together on Teen Beach 2. We're reprising a song that um, sort of introduced the primary characters when they all were sort of like falling in love from the first movie. We're reprising that song and sort of rearranging it and making it much more of a emotional song now and not so much fun as, as it is just sort of a, a reconnecting of the four major characters and actually doing it differently this way um, – uh, it went from something incredibly fun to in- something incredibly um, emotional and sweet. And it's really nice uh, just when you change your perspective and you can change the arrangement on something, if the song is well-written enough uh, and the bones are there, um, that it can take many different forms and convey different emotions. So that was kind of fun working on it. How long have you, uh, how long have you two been together? Faye and I are married 23 years, and we have been writing for 28 years. So... Um, Sometimes it feels like we've been together forever, and sometimes it feels like it's 10 minutes. It's just, it's still very fresh, so it's all good. Uh, let's go back to uh, to High School Musical, because sure. it was an uber-mega successful yeah, thing. And if anyone doesn't know coming. what that is, uh, my generation called it fame. But yeah, right, uh, right, the, this right. generation thinks of this as a big thing for Disney, and they mm-hmm. still do shows, and it had multiple sequels. Um, so take us through that process because that that again that was it was you did original music for it with lyrics so that stuff would have had to be done for rehearsal. Yeah, it was purposes actually what was what was interesting is that's when you're writing songs that's when you are ensconced way before pre-production, never with score. It was interesting because we were killing ourselves before they even had pre-production because they were going over lyric approval and music approval. And then we had to see who was going to sing it and test the keys. And then they go into pre-production and rehearsals. And then you have to make playback mixes so they can play it back with their earwigs on stage. And then, you know, make sure the lip sync is correct. And then then you have to go back and and sweeten it, which means adding more musicians. We we need like a horn thing here. And it takes months and months and months and months to get these records ready. Um, which is why you have so many writing teams on the Disney movies because you basically have about a minute and a half to write the song and there's 12 songs and there's just no way any one writing team can do this all. You know, it's, it's a little bit backward. Um, you know, usually when you have a little bit more planning and more of a design, you can actually, like when you're writing a real musical for the New York stage, you just, you spend time and think about what you want to do. And it's usually one set of writers, but this is sort of, in and you a think sense, on a show that had more time and more money and more, yeah, have, but in, you know. in a sense, but I mean, you know, the other side of it is, you know, they, they have to crank these things out because of, of their subscription and what people are expecting on the Disney channel. And they have to put out 
volume. And so they have to turn these things around really, really fast. So they have access to incredibly, incredibly gifted songwriter producers and they put us all together and they take, well, we like your song, we like your song, we like your song. Now go off and spend the next six weeks on your song and then, you know, get it in shape. We'll do the vocals. Now go off and do the additional arranging and do the original mixing, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it takes, it takes a long time. And so on this process with high school musicals, um, with the franchise, you know, it's, it's like we're killing ourselves to finish these songs and then make them record ready. And then as soon as we deliver the record, they shove the movie in my face and I got to turn around and now we got to spot it for scoring. So the blessing is that it didn't have to happen simultaneously. Um, cause it would just really be very fragmenting. Um, they're in two entirely different disciplines. Um, and for not every- didn't catch them, you're writing a song ahead of time. It's got to be recorded. It's a hundred percent. It's basically a hundred percent done before well, we get anywhere near shooting the, the, it because they right, have to that's rehearse correct. it. The and structure has to be a hundred percent done. The actual arrangement, orchestration, and full final product doesn't have to be done. But the tempo, the key, the words, everything has to be because they're matching choreography they're, right, to exactly. it. Exactly. And so, as long as they have their map, then you go back and embellish. But. Um, not every songwriter knows how to score picture and not every film composer knows how to write a song. It's a misconception for anybody who's curious out there. They're two entirely distinct and separate disciplines. And um, uh, there are a handful of people that know how to do both. I think I'm one of them. And um, it's a gas to be able to. It's an entirely different discipline. I mean, it's just as much energy goes into writing and producing a song as as I would a score uh, because you have to get so much information in such a short amount of time in three or four minutes as opposed to having the luxury of developing over 40 or 50 minutes. But it's it's they're both incredibly intense. With, with that different. perspective, uh, does, it may, does it feel differently when you watch it uh, given that you wrote the score before you saw the piece as opposed to usually seeing the piece before your score um, goes in? No, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't. The only thing that changes um, is sometimes if if you're scoring uh, a movie with songs, your ins and outs of the songs have to have a little extra care paid attention to them. Sometimes you have to back, write, or compose within the groove of a song so that the score seamlessly goes into a song or the song seamlessly goes into score. Um, and then obviously taking some of those themes, if you can, and use them throughout the piece for consolidating and cohesive purposes. That's where it's a little bit different, but pretty much, you know, you still look at it the way you would a composer and just sort of like, you know, have how much time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want this in 17 minutes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, another high-profile um, group of movies you run were the American Pies. I yeah. assume they were much lower budget than the uh, Disney The first Mush- one was low budget. The second one was a giant budget because the first one was just such an obscene hit. Um, both were incredibly fun. Um, much like High School Musical, no one knew what they had with American Pie. Disney had no idea what they had with High School Musical. They were terrified. They said, are they going to run it for two weeks and blah, it's, we're going to pull it because just nobody's know. And nobody knew it was going to be the juggernaut that it was. And something like High School Musical comes every like 15 years, those kind of groundbreaking things. They're not groundbreaking, but they are every 15 years, you know. Like you said, it was fame and before that it was Greece and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But with American Pie, um, it basically started the, created a new sort of young adult, 
sexual romantic comedy um, that were always around, but they just kind of took it to a new level of intelligence, grossness, and fun. Um, and what was so great about the American Pie movies is that they're screamingly funny, even though they're disgusting. You know, I mean, Animal House was sort of like a precursor. And then the American Pie movies were, they just took it up 12 notches. And so when we did the first one, um, you know, I got a chance to work with the cast because half the cast was in this jazz band in the movie. And that's what Chris Klein wanted to be in so he could meet Mina Suvari and blah, 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 blah. And so I had a lot of uh, production time with them on the set, sort of teaching them how to sing and blah, blah, blah. And um, then when I met with uh, Paul and Chris, the writer and producer, the Whites Brothers, um, we were just experimenting with different kinds of small band orchestration. And then um, the... Um, to try and fit fit the honest mood and the sincere mood of, of these, you know, young, fragile, funny people. Um, and we had one scene, I don't know if you remember the movie, but um, where, um, oh, I forgot the character's name, um, who has an affair with Stifler's mom and he's in his white tuxedo jacket and he's downstairs in the pool room and she's plotsed at the bar. And um, they... Uh, Paul and Chris wanted something, you know, kind of swinging because he's in like this sort of, you know, white tux, like Rat Pack thing. And we came up with the idea of doing this real big sort of Henry Mancini, uh, almost Pink Panther-esque meets sort of Nelson Riddle arrangement of a, of a tune, of a, of a score, of a piece of music that I composed. Um, and it's this big brassy pump. And it plays like this real like sexy guy who's 18 who's trying to come on to Stifler's mom. And we reprised it in the second movie because it became like this really identifiable piece of music. And um, uh, the only difference was the orchestra was four times bigger. <laughs> it was a giant orchestra. I think we had about 106 pieces on American Pie 2. Um, really, really, really fun. And... Uh, it was the same amount of fun writing for both. Um, it's just the scope just got bigger. And so the complexity and the pressure, because the studio basically said, you know, we've got a lot riding on this now. We're the first one. It was East Great Falls High. They changed it like towards the end of production to American Pie. So that's... Good call. Yeah, very good call. Very good call. Uh, but it was a blast working on those movies and being a part of a, of a franchise and creating a type of musical pastiche that I, I think really was successful with the movies. Now, they certainly released the high school musicals uh, out as CDs and all that, and I'm sure that's been lucrative. Did American Pie get released as um, uh, The score, score didn't. There wasn't a lot of score uh, on those movies. I only had about 20 minutes of score in the movies, and those films were primarily soundtrack-based. They were song-based, and those soundtracks sold very, very well because those were still in the days where, you know, it was Blink-182 and Bare Naked Ladies, and, you know, they were just coming out in those days. You know, these are major groups, and they were they had huge hits on the radio and so they were they were plopped into these soundtracks and they sold really 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 well that was the driving force as a matter of fact half the score that i had to write had to sort of sound a little bit like bare naked blink 182 green day blah 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 blah, to sort of keep the flavor and then uh i had opportunities to to write like score score stuff you know which was kind of fun as it turns out um you and i actually uh have crossed paths before um unknowingly um, I did a, a small movie called uh, The Madams Family, The Truth oh my of the God. Canal Street Brothel. Oh, my God. Some of that team, yeah. Oh, my God. I was yeah. down there in Louisiana. So I uh, worked that 
uh, you've, you've probably seen more of it than I have. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, and, uh, it was great actually. Um, I had met, uh, the director on a Disney project and he brought me in to do this immediately after cause he had that on his plate. Um, but I didn't go down to Louisiana, you know, sure. again, it was just basically, um, very little time turn around and, you know, let, let's get on it. But uh, love that movie. We've had that happen a few times where I've worked on some some movie during production that somebody else either came in as a visual effects supervisor, mm-hmm. uh, costume designer, or in your case, composer. Yeah. And did did some end uh, some end of the production? You know, either in a different unit or somehow. Oh, a- absolutely. You know, that, but we never met. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It was interesting because um, the director Ron Lago Marcino, um, I did a movie with for Disney called Pop Rocks. And um, it was a very silly, wonderful, charming family movie. And of course, you know, he turns right around and does this brothel movie with, you know, with a murder case. And he said, you know, let's go. And I said, great, where do I sign? But it was just so funny to be able to, in, in, in basically three or four weeks time, we finished one sort of like Disney movie. And then we turned around and writing this creepy brothel funky thing it was very fun it was very fun expanding your horizons exactly exactly speaking of uh expanding your horizons you've uh you recently scored uh you were recently commissioned to compose your first ballet yes which was awesome tell us about that um about a year ago um my wife was reading an article in the la times um, about an up-and-coming sort of dance empresarius. Her name is Melissa Barak. And she was uh, one of the principal dancers, I think, in New York City Ballet. And she was very young and was one of the youngest people in the New York City Ballet ever to get a major grant to choreograph alongside with Peter Martins, who's the artistic director at New York City Ballet, who was also one of the great premier dancers of the second half of the 20th century. L.A. born and raised, and she is putting has been putting together her own dance company. It's called Barack Ballet, and um, they did a piece on her that was just like a love letter. And then two weeks later, she had a performance of her ballet company at the Broad Theater in Santa Monica, the Big Space. Yeah, and again, the Times just it was a love letter. And Faye said, my wife said, you should give her a call. You love writing this stuff. You conservatory boy and you don't have to take notes from anybody and you can, you can just, you, whatever comes to your head, you can, you, you'll love this. It'll be a great, great outlet for you. And I said, okay, 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 okay. So I, I gave her a call and I took her to lunch and I sent her some music and we became friends and she said, I love your stuff. Let's work together. And I have another concert premiering at the Broad, which just premiered in June uh, last month, uh, two months ago. Um, and, but we had lunch in January and she said, you know, we've got six months and let's, let's do this. And I said, great, but on one condition, we do this together. I don't want to scribble off something and go here, go choreograph and, or vice versa. Let's, let's do this from the ground up. And that's exactly what we did. And she taught me a lot about movement and I taught her a lot about, um, thematic development and um, and she's super, super, super smart and she knows exactly what she wants and it was a huge success and so we're going to do another one. We're going to do another one in January at the Broad. Really awesome. It's really awesome. Really, really awesome. Continuing to expand your horizons. Yeah, uh, you know. So we talked a little bit about this earlier but um, I'd like to kind of revisit this subject, kind of bringing it back into um, – uh, the more artistic side of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has been said that uh, the score is really another character mm-hmm. uh, in the script um, or in the story, mm-hmm. furthering ideas and messages that you see on the screen. Right. Um, 
would you mind to tell us a little bit about your approach and how you um, kind of see it and hear it, visualize it, sense it? How does uh, how does all this come together well, for you? I approach it two different ways. Sometimes you have no choice but to well, actually, unfortunately, most of the time you have no choice but to follow uh, the temp score that was pasted onto the edit or the director's cut um, because you always want to hear music and to see how it works or what works or what doesn't work. And you can really make a very strong case for trying to establish tone in a cut, especially when you're trying to show it to the studio and they kind of want to see, even though they're edits and they're edited versions, they're, they're like mini finished products. So the studio gets a sense of what's going to work, what's not going to work. They spent all this money. Um, Who does that? I get the impression uh, you did not do that. It starts with the film editor before the music editor comes in. Um, cause the music editor that I, that will work with me has two hats. They basically have to take the film editor's assembly and the film editor will sometimes have temp music in his pocket that he's, he likes and uses all the time. The director goes, I love this, but they're usually placeholders until the music editor comes in and basically starts temping with score. Uh, sometimes it's the composer that's hired score, and most of the times it's whatever music they think is appropriate. They go into gazillion gigabytes of libraries and see, throw it up there and see what works, and then they edit it to try and make it really feel like it was scored for this to give the studio and the director a sense of what works and what doesn't. So in those cases, um, you're really hamstrung because you have to basic. Uh, what what happens is is that everybody. Um, they can't separate themselves from falling in love, having heard it a zillion times, and saying, I love the tone of this. I would love to hear what you can do. And as much as anybody wants to basically impart that on a composer, I want to give you this as a, as a flavor, no matter what you do, they keep going back to what they heard. It's something called temp love. Because you, um, you've heard it you've heard a it thousand a million times. times. You've scrubbed and it right over the lines. Through no fault you know of your beats. own at that point, you can't separate it out of your head. So the composer's really faced with a conundrum of trying to basically recreate that map, but through his eyes... But it really has to recreate that map. It has to hit that same, get that same effect. Yeah. And at the same time, you have to try not to get sued by the other publishers and composers that wrote all that temp music. I hear so. five, five notes. Huh? I hear five notes. Yeah. You can do five notes after that. You, you, you yeah. better get a release. That's exactly right. Well, actually, it's less than five. I think now it's, 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 it depends how um, recognizable the notes are. Hmm. Um, uh, but... It's 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 difficult. Um, then on the other side of the coin, when I started up with Jericho or when I do independent movies, um, I have much more latitude to come up with a palette of my own because the there's not as much studio pressure. The director has uh, a little bit more um, artistic leverage. Um, and in Jericho's case, um, John Turtletow, who's not only produced it, but is also a director, really is a lover, a lover of music and wanted to really start from scratch. So when that happens, which is why I'm so proud of Jericho, because there was just nothing to put me into another direction. He, he basically said, just create from scratch. What do you see? 
and I again I I then I look at at the picture um, constantly and look how the characters interact with each other and get a sense of the story and I try and get really caught up in the story and then from those emotions I try and start painting musical pictures um, I was actually everybody loved to have me in on um, the spotting sessions not only because I, I had to be there and know where the music was going <laughs> in but they would purposely not send me any footage ahead of time because I was such a fan of the show from day one I was like their best audience. I was like, oh, no, I can't. And I was like screaming and crying and laughing. And they were like hysterical because I came up that every day once a week to spot music. And I ended up being like this fan. So <laughs> they really, you know, I became like, you know, when's David coming? Great. We have spotting. Great, great. We'll see if he likes it or not. Because I, I, I just love the process. So it's really more of an emotional um, outpouring of how you process that that person, that storyline. Um, and of course you can do it many different ways. So yeah, for instance, you know, you could, and just trying to throw a couple things out there to see if, we, if any of it sparks your interest, but you know, you, uh, if you're maybe doing a wide, you know, a wide landscape shot going this way, you might, you know, if it looks a certain way, you might go to the, the old Lord of the Rings horn whoa, mm-hmm. as you're flying over a mountaintop, right. you know, like certain well, things are, re- or, repeatable. or you make the decision to go completely against picture. For an uh, equally stunning effect. It depends, you know. Um, they both work, you know. And sometimes you try three or four things and then <clears throat> as it takes shape, once something takes shape, it starts writing itself. That's the cool part. It just takes – it just starts taking shape. I did a film um, the same year High School 3 came out in theaters. I did an international film for Warner Brothers called Christmas Inc., uh, by a Mexican film director named Fernando Rosbar. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Very talented guy. And um, I was, it was sort of like a very dark, ironic Christmas tale. Um, global warming was melting the snow and kids weren't buying Christmas presents anymore. One of Santa's elves broke off and became sort of just like his own toy marketer. He could build it cheaper. He could build it this. And he was telling people there is no thing as Christmas. And so, and, and at the end, of course, <laughs> so, so capitalism comes to the North Pole. Yeah, exactly. we so, but and at the end, of course, snow comes and Santa's back and blah, blah, blah. But it, it was a very, very, very dark piece. Very funny, but very, very dark piece. And, um, I toiled over the main title sequence because I knew how the director wanted to shoot it. It was like a six or seven minute sequence that all had to sort of start the tone of the film and also be responsible for where the film was going to go because he had beautiful images in the in this in this long sequence. And I toiled and toiled and toiled and toiled. And they didn't have enough footage yet to show me, so he would describe it over the phone, and that was really hard. And then he would kind of draw a picture, and that was really hard. And then I started getting some picture, but without effects, and it was all about the effects. That it, so it, it was just it was just laborious. And once I've got enough footage to sort of get a sense of what he was going for, then I could really pull my hair out and really figure out what I wanted to say. And like. Once I came up with this theme, it was like a five or six or seven minute piece and the rest of the film just wrote itself because I had toiled over tone so hard um, that it just wrote itself after that. Once you said it. Yeah, it just wrote itself. I mean, there was like seven 
or eight separate themes in there, but it just wrote itself. So, I mean, that's another way something can crystallize in your brain. I like that. Yeah. I like the... Okay. So we've gotten the nuts and bolts out of you. I can ask a oh, fun question sure. at this point. Um, <laughs> um, I had a good phrase for this. The, you have, you've had a lot of influences. Obviously, they're parental influences. I'm sure you've had lots of musicians, other musicians. That we, you know, mm-hmm. Every time you talk to a musician, they can always rattle off 20 different musicians oh, that sure. they love and blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Do composers have other favorite composers? Oh, yeah. Do you look at somebody else's work and, and go, oh, yeah. like, man, that was awesome. Yeah. I wish you know. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, top of the list would probably be John Williams in terms of film composer. Bernard Never Her- heard of him, John Williams. Yeah, seriously. Uh, Bernard Herman is another guy that I just think is just groundbreaking. Um, Henry Mancini, not so much because he was a great film composer, but because he introduced the song as film score in his movies. And so what his genius was, was to craft a beautiful song um, or a really clever song like the Pink Panther, a theme, and then use that theme all throughout the movie. Um, Where someone like John Williams, you're basically listening to Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky and Bartok and the guy is just, you know, incredible with all this lush texture and thematic development. But Mancini... um, basically started this new era of being able to write a song, whether it was Two for the Road, whether it was Moon River, um, and and use that, or Charade, and just use that as the theme throughout the entire movie. And um, no one had really done that until him. So I, and I love his work. So that's why he'd be one of my favorite composers as well in terms of what he did. But um, I would say the person who probably had the greatest influence on me composing um, I mean, true influence uh, is Dave Grusin. Um, I that? think without a doubt, uh, Milagro, Beanfield War, On Golden Pond, Tootsie. Um, he was just one of the great, great musicians in my book of like all time. I just, just a huge, 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 huge writer, massive. Um. I identified with him thematically in terms of his structure, his song structure, his scoring structure, um, orchestratively, his arrangement sense, his pianistic sense, just all up and down. I just there's in, there's nothing about him I don't adore, and uh, I, massive influence. I'm probably more than anyone else. Dave Dave Grusin has been, you know, it for me. I listen to other scores that I love. You know, um, Thomas Newman's written beautiful scores, and James Newton Howard's written beautiful scores, and John Powell's written beautiful scores. American Beauty was one of those. Yeah, American Beauty was a classic. For twelve years, everybody was writing American Beauty. You know, it was such a you know, yeah, and that happens too, where something becomes so iconic and so famous that's all anybody wants to hear. So you just kind of keep doing watered down versions of of that. Um, it's the good artists create, great artists steal kind of vibe. Or? Well, yeah, but without again, without you know being exactly it without trying to without trying to get sued. But for me, um, I would say Dave Grusin probably had the biggest influence on my sense of Lewis how I and approach. I were talking about some of the other ones we could think of. We came up with Howard Shore and Hans Zimmer. You talked about Danny Elfman earlier, mm-hmm. um, James Horner, Thomas Newman. So yeah. No shortage of, uh, of composers, no, there are a lot although of... they're very unknown. We People really don't know what they... Like, yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's there's a lot of... 
there are people, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, one of the greats of all time also had a huge influence on me is Ennio Morricone. Um, um, just a brilliant, brilliant, passionate, passionate, passionate writer. Um, but you could go on and on and on. I mean, I, there's probably 20 people that I love, but one or two that have fundamentally changed the way I think about music. You know, but that's always a personal thing. You know, there are great scores out there. Um, listeners of the show will be shocked that I'm going to bring up Star Wars for a second, but they, <laughs> the, there was a, there was a, a, a story that, um, you know, Lucas had been such a micromanager for every part of the film and they, you know, broke all these boundaries for special effects and blah, oh, blah, yeah. blah. And he was involved in every little bit and piece until it came to the soundtrack, <laughs> which Lucas admitted he knew absolutely nothing about. And this is an area where most people know absolutely nothing about. Yeah. They could learn other little bits and pieces, but he basically just said to John Williams, you're going to create something, do something. And it would turn out, you know. Uh, the, when they showed the film without the special effects and without the score, lots of people got fired at Fox. When they showed the film with special effects and no score, lots of people were in danger of still being fired. Right. When they showed the film with its special effects and with its score, people got promotions, the stock split oh, yeah, 14 course, times and went on to make $10 billion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, music, you can't quantify it or qualify it. You, you really can't put your finger on it. If, if a composer does his or her job really, really well, um, two things have to happen. A, you have to be moved by the by the film itself, and B, you don't know why you're moved because the score is supposed to subliminally take you for this ride. It's not supposed to. Even Star Wars, as bombastic as massive as it is, it doesn't steal the show. It absolutely supports the film and the thematic development. You're, you're rooting, and you're rooting because the visual is supplied with this rooting music. Um, you can't have one without the other. You just can't. Otherwise, they just live in an independent worlds. But so even something as as I don't want to say ostentatious because that's the, that's the absolute wrong word. But as something as defining as the score to Star Wars was, it only defines what what you were watching. And it has to really support that. Um, you know, John Williams, probably more than most anybody else, understood that about filmmaking. You know, um, it's you're not supposed to take focus, and yet you're supposed to guide an audience. Uh, music can absolutely lead you where the director wants you to be led or intentionally lead you someplace else so the visual becomes very shocking. That's, that's where music is very effective. Um, but it's in degrees. It's subtle. Even when it's loud and screaming, it's you know it's it's a it's a part player. And for anyone who doesn't believe you, go try and watch the original Superman without its soundtrack, or Indiana Jones without its right. soundtrack. Well, those, those are those are great examples. I mean, you know, one of my favorite scores of John Williams is Close Encounters, which is just a masterpiece. Um, and most of it is textural until you get to the point where he delivers these five notes that everybody will remember for the rest of their lives. Um, it's very, very simple. And yet it changed an entire landscape of film music, you know, but it supported the film. You're a musician first, obviously. I assume you'd agree with that statement. Oh, yeah. that you're a musician first. Uh, but I saw another, while we were prepping for this, I saw another interview that you did with somebody else. And you were just rattling off all the various software you use and all uh -huh. the various equipment you use. Uh -huh. At this point, even you know, being a musician is its own skill set. But you must be 
engineer at this point for all the yeah, different types you, of gear and you all the stuff have you to have learn, to do. You kind of have to learn. A lot of people are sort of like just geek. They were born geek freaks, and it's kind of cool. Um, I love technology, but I, I became a geek freak. I wasn't. I was more of a music guy first, and then, um, you know, um, I became a geek freak. You have to learn how to work everything, um, and then you have to learn how to engineer your stuff. And I mean, I have people that basically mix all my stuff and engineer. You know, when it goes to the final product, that are supremely gifted at what they do. Uh, but in the interim, you kind of still have to learn how to get even to sixty, seventy percent because you're mocking up things for producers and directors. It's got to sound good. So you learn, you learn, you know, you really just learn. It becomes, after a while, it all becomes the same from the same soup. You know, everything's kind of set up a certain way now and you open up your computer and you've got all your compressors and you've got your libraries and, you know, come from years of tweaking, you know, you try and reduce the amount of time intensity to, to get started. And then after that, you know, I'm missing this. This isn't uh, spread enough. This isn't sharp enough. This isn't piercing enough. Then you, you got to know what you're doing. Got to know what you're doing. The way I understand it, uh, you and Jay Gruska were mm. uh, some of the early adopters for the uh, Performer Digital Workstation. Yes. Uh, tell us about that a little bit. Um, Jay, who's also one of my nearest and dearest friends and a brilliant, brilliant composer. Um, yeah, we, we started working with Digital Performer pretty much as soon as it came out. Um, this was in eighties, in the mid to late eighties. Eighty. I actually started Digital Performer or DP, as we call it. I think eighty. Yikes! Eighty six, eighty seven. And this is before Pro Tools. Oh yeah. So this is like the first. Oh yeah, on a digital- Mac Classic, on a four inch diagonal screen, <laughs> and you know, I think it had a four megabyte hard drive. It was like huge. You know, yeah, I'm sorry, an eight megabyte. It was an eight megabyte huge. machine. Eight megabyte machine. Um. Yeah, Jay actually, Jay uh, taught me a lot about Digital Performer. Um, We were all teaching ourselves, but Jay had been doing it for a little bit longer. And he had already come up with his trick template. And um, I actually started working for Jay um, on some projects that he was doing, separate from projects that I was doing. And... The additional time we were spending together, he would, you know, say, you should try this. You try, oh my God, that's a great trick. And then I would come up with something, hey, Jay, what about, oh, that's fantastic. And then, then we would just have this constant dialogue about how pissed off we were that it wasn't advanced enough and it was overloading the computer and they should have this and they should have this for streaming and they should make a stem differently. And, you know, after a while, um, a lot of people got very turned off of digital performer. Um, only because everybody thought it's always greener on the other side. Grass is greener, but it's not. So people who went to Logic had, you know, they hate parts about Logic. Then they went to Pro Tools and they hated things about Pro Tools. And, you know, I think for Jay and I, um, it became something so familiar. And we also started maintaining uh, relationships with the higher-ups at the company. So we had a sense of what was coming down the pike um, and that we were excited about their commitment to improving. And there was a point in the early 90s where we were really close, both of us, to just letting go. And um, we decided to hang in there. And also Apple computer was at its lowest point. It it almost went out of business in the early 90s. Um, You know, regrettably, you know, I remember when it was $1.50 per share. And that boy, what a a mistake that was. (laughs) If only I knew. Um, But uh, we stuck with it. 
and the company stuck with it. And now they're, you know, they're leading edge on pretty much everything. I mean, most people tend to write and mix in Pro Tools. Um, but having been a digital performer guy my entire life, Jay as well, I mean, we have Pro Tools rigs, but they're for other people that come in that know how to do it and they do Pro Tools sessions and I don't bother with it. I don't even, I don't go there. Being someone who's been around since before digital audio, audio workstations were available, um, how has that changed your workflow? Um, it's only changed dramatically in the last six or seven years. Uh, when digital audio first came out and we all thought we were like the coolest people on the planet and there was DA88 audio tapes and we would rack these machines together and we had these digital multi-tracks and things were so cool. And we're talking Isn't about... the eight- somewhere in there? In that well, generation? yeah, but the Sinclair actually was a little bit ahead of its time because it actually had decent fidelity, but it was a monster and it was obscenely expensive. It was like $150,000 just for the keyboard. And then you had all these add-ons and there were only like four or five guys in town that had Sinclair. I heard it was the, 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 the industry secret to, to if you the Sinclair, you didn't teach anybody it because you were one of right. those four or five That's guys. That's exactly that knew. right. And you know, it also the Sinclair. I mean, was also responsible for, um, but music budgets going away because it was another reason why you didn't have to pay for orchestras and I could do it now with my synth strings and oh, and the producer said great, we can just save fifty thousand dollars. So I mean, it's that kind of was a bad thing for music composition, um, even though it was an amazing invention. Um, but that's an entirely different, another podcast, another podcast. Um, but yeah, when digital audio first came into being, we all jumped online. We were all at the bleeding edge, you know, and we ended up wanting to be first on our block and ended up being beta testers for everybody because nothing worked. Um, you know, cut to 20 years later, I want something to be working for a year and a half before I consider buying it. But at the time we thought it was really, really, really cool. But very limited. Once you get past the cool factor, you realize how limited everything was. Pro Tools was archaic. Digital Performer was archaic. Um, and it only made you want more. And then the computers weren't fast enough. And it, it became a very, very frustrating process to about six years ago. Computer chip design, um, library technology, um, digital audio technology, um, and... Um, I, you know, all together sort of had a quantum leap about five or six years ago, um, where we all saw a real future where we could literally be comfortable working inside the box and not have to worry about as much peripheral gear. You know, now you can probably put a fabulous audio environment together for about, I don't know, 40 or 50 grand that would have cost about a million bucks 25 years ago. Sure. So the technology's um, gotten you there. Well, yeah, but I mean, you could have said the same thing 15 years ago, but it sounded like crap. Now it sounds awesome, you know. So for a relatively modest investment, you're a state of the art. You know, you're you're keeping up with the Joneses. Um, so now is when I, I, in the last five or six years, where I actually started, you know, committing more resources to technology um, and getting taking more and more and more out of my machine room. I mean, the machine room is basically threadbare now, where it used to be filled with racks of samplers and synthesizers and wires under the floor. And, you know, we've pulled like 10,000 wires out of the trough and patch bays gone, nothing. Everything is digital. It's fabulous. And, you know, my dream is to get, you know, we basically went from 12 computers to eight computers. Now there's five computers. My dream is to get down to, to two. Um, and just one cable between the two of them <laughs> and just a speaker, <laughs> you know, two speakers and I'll be a very, very happy person. Yeah, it's great. Technology is great, but only recently, only recently. 
Um, well, I guess um, I guess taking us from front to back, uh, you know, we appreciate you taking the time to oh, come God. down here and just Pleasure. give us the whole rundown. And uh, you know, your side of it is not something we get to hear too often or really at all. Oh, cool! And I hope I, I hope uh, I hope it helped. And I, I hope, hope well, I hope the listeners uh, <laughs> the listeners take part in it too because uh, it's just not something you hear every day. So thank you so much for taking My the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, apparently, composers are important to the movie-making process. Who would have thought? And now we've learned more about that here on Cinematic Immunity. <laughs> I don't know why Brian is laughing so hard, but I feel like it's contagious. I feel like this is, you know, our continuing education. This is an area that you and I didn't know really anything about beyond an academic level of understanding they write music. But uh, the, David was nice enough to tell us, you know, the ins and outs of how he gets on a project and... What he does and the pitfalls, the possibilities, the promise, the peril. It was great he can come by and, and show us behind the curtain of uh, an area of movie making that's really important that we don't know anything about. So again, thanks to David Lawrence and thanks to everybody out there who has been continuing to listen to Cinematic Immunity. Uh, perhaps you are a college student or know a college student uh, that is trying to break into one of these aspects of the business. This is the podcast for you. Please share it everywhere you know, everywhere you can. Um, you can find us on our site www.cinematicimmunitycast.com. Of course, as always, you can find us on Stitcher, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Drop a comment on the box. Give us five stars. Like us. Favorite us. All that good stuff. And uh, We and now we'll have be... a star rating on iTunes. Did you notice that? I didn't notice that. We finally broke the five people have reported in line. So they it now shows that we have five stars. All five people were nice enough to do five stars. Woohoo! I think you and I were two of them. So we should figure <laughs> out who the other three are. And thank them immediately <laughs> yeah. and thanks to everyone else for taking a listen to the show and continuing to support uh, again you can see all of our good stuff on our blog on our podcast thanks again everybody 